0: It is a joy to be celebrating the resurrection together, as you know. We can hardly even begin to grasp all that transpired in heaven and on earth when God the Father, through His own power, raised Jesus, His Son, back to life, especially after that incredible death on the cross. Of course, as we study Scriptures more and more, we we come to understand that it it wasn't really the nails and the whippings and the crown of thorns, etc., that caused Jesus the most pain. It was the bringing down of the wrath of God upon Himself as He bore the sins of the world that hurt the most. And to think that He did that for us, to think about the impact that both Christ's death and resurrection had on all humanity. And of course, not, not just on human history, but even on divine history. Think about that. This was part of God's plan for what would transpire in both earth and in heaven. Bottom line is that it is more than we can wrap our minds around. But we know enough to know that it is worth celebrating. For Christians this is the most wonderful time of the year. This is a day to celebrate. We know that without the resurrection as Paul said, our faith is in vain. We don't have any hope. And of all men, we are what? Most to be pitied. But praise God, he did bring Jesus back to life and so we celebrate. Let's do open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Again, for those who are guests, we're in the middle of an 11 week study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. This whole book study revolves around the theme of walking worthy, walking in a manner worthy of the God who saved us, the God who calls us to his own kingdom and glory. And that comes from chapter 2, verse 12. And Paul is reminding us throughout this book that we've only got one short life to live. And by the grace of God we want to do him justice we want to live a life that is worthy of the name that we bear child of God such an unfathomable thought that we would be called as John said the children of God oh that we would live in a manner worthy of God who made us one of His own. And God is teaching us through these five chapters what that kind of life looks like and how to pursue it with all we've got. So as we've worked our way through the first half of this book, I have to say that I have had my eye on today. The text that we are going to look at is so personal, is so meaningful. This text today is a treasure for all those who call themselves Christians. And Paul is going to draw our attention to the good news in verse 6 of chapter 3. Now here's what's interesting though, and he only does this one time in all of his writings. When we think of good news, we always think of the good news of the gospel. The life-changing message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died once and for all, on account of our sins so that we could be forgiven and have a holy and pure relationship with God. But the good news doesn't stop there, as you know. Jesus didn't just die and pay the price for our sins. He came back to life so that all who believe in Him could also have the confident hope of eternity in heaven with God. That's the good news. But that's not exactly what Paul is going to talk about in these verses. Let's read verses 6 through 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction... We were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself And Jesus, our Lord, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. May God bless the reading of his wonderful word. Let's pray. Lord, these are amazing words. We know that you give us hope through them. You give us truth through your word. And we pray, Lord, that today you would do what we ask every week. And as your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and give us understanding, help us to see the immeasurable value of what you are saying to us. Every one of us needs strength and encouragement. Every one of us needs hope. And so we pray, Lord, that this day You would minister that to us. Not just so that we can have it for ourselves, but so that we can share it with others and so that we may do like Paul, and that is give thanksgiving to You. That we may do what we've done already for the past half hour, and that is testify of Your goodness, Your holiness, What a joy it is to be able to sing your praises, Lord. As we study your word now, we ask that you would give us reason to sing all the more, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now in order for us to appreciate these verses that we just read, we have to understand where Paul is coming from. So very briefly, we looked last week at verses 1 through 6 and what we called Paul's unbearable situation. He said in the first part of this chapter, when I could endure it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul was afraid that these young believers might have given up on Christ and let go of their belief in Him because persecution had come to town. They were being harassed. They were being threatened. Their livelihoods were being threatened. Genuine persecution had arrived. And Paul was afraid that they might have denounced Christ, or at least might have become discouraged and weakened in their faith. That was the parallel that we saw last Sunday with Palm Sunday. The masses came and worshiped Jesus as He rode through, that, through town on that donkey. But when persecution arrived, they hid. Even His disciples scattered. Even Peter, the rock, refused for a few moments to even be associated with Jesus Christ. Paul was very aware of the danger that hard times pose to the faith of believers. So he sent Timothy on this incredible mission to go and strengthen them, to encourage them, and to find out how they're doing. And we see that in verse 2 of this chapter, and that's where we pick up today in verse 6. So let's walk our way through these verses and learn from them. Verse 6 again says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news... Of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. This is so packed with truth for the 21st century. First, let's look at point number one on the screen the good news. This was the report, the joyous update from Timothy. And it contained three parts. Faith, love, and deep friendship. First, let's look at faith. This is simply their belief that Jesus was indeed the crucified and risen Son of God. That He was true. The good news in verse 6 was that their faith was still in the good news. They were still trusting God. They still believed in the risen Savior and that He was coming back someday. They had not renounced. They weren't in hiding. They weren't lying. They were faithful followers of Jesus Christ their Messiah. Secondly, we see their love. Now I have to admit, this point caught my attention as I studied through this verse. It's not that love isn't important, But this is a spiritual matter. Wouldn't Paul have been satisfied enough, joyful enough, comforted enough just to find out that they had remained true to the faith? Apparently, that wasn't enough. Of all the great virtues that Paul could have called out, he specifically pointed to their faith and their love. We learn that these two are inseparable. They're invaluable. It's not enough to say that we have faith, but not have love. What book does that sound like? James. Faith and works. Faith will always prove itself through right behavior. Right doctrine isn't enough. It demands right living. I've read through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John this last week, and the youth group is studying through 1st John what an awesome text to be working on. 1 John is stressing the point that true faith always results in holy and more holy and more holy living. It is one of the tests, one of the assurances of genuine salvation. Faith isn't just a noun. We find that it's a what? A verb. And that verb is best defined by the word love. Now, of course, Scripture isn't just talking about any kind of love. It is specifically referring to the love that accompanies faith. That would be a godly love. A God-like love. That is simply a love that loves God and therefore loves the things that God loves. The people the values, the truths, the behaviors, the goals, etc. If God loves it, we should love it because we love Him. That is Christian or Christ-like love. It is of no small point of interest to note that the two greatest commandments are to love God with everything you've got and to love your neighbor those around you, all those around you, just as you do your own self. That is true godly love. There's a third element here, a third element in the good news, and it is deep friendship. Paul spoke of the good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. This is stunning. We learn in this verse that friendship, this friendship, this fond affection that we studied in chapter 2, this tight-knit bond, this spiritual bond that Paul exemplified was actually a two-way street. Love is most good when it flows in both directions. We know this. This was exemplary Christian behavior, as Paul called it back in chapter 1, because there was a mutual commitment to each other. This wasn't a master-servant relationship. It wasn't a a provider-consumer relationship. It wasn't superficial or shallow. These people genuinely saw themselves as brothers and sisters in Christ with Paul. They saw themselves as family. They were in this together. Not sticking together was not an option. How remarkable that Paul includes this aspect of deep friendship, deep Christian friendship alongside love and faith. We begin to realize that where true faith exists, there will be true love. And where there is true brotherly love, there is deep friendship. If we flip that around, we find that the truth is still there. If there is no deep friendship, it's because there is no true, sacrificial, all the time, brotherly love and commitment in both directions. And if there is no brotherly love, it's because there is no true God-like faith. It all comes back to faith, that absolute trust and confidence in God, in His Word. That realization that we need the Holy Spirit in us doing what we absolutely cannot do for ourselves. If If we want to deepen our friendships, to find truer friends, then don't focus on the relationship itself, right? That is a byproduct. It is a consequence. It's a result of something else. Focus instead on brotherly sacrificial caring consistent love but even then we see that it's still not enough to focus on brotherly love we have to bring it back to God the truest love the deepest love is a godly love a supreme life-giving love for God that overflows to others yielding the fruit of friendship That is why we need God so desperately. Paul said to these Thessalonian believers, you've got all three. Verse 7, for this reason, referring back to the all three, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Point number two in our outline. We see the needed comfort. I hear echoes from last week's study on what word? Encouragement It's interesting that this word here for comfort is the exact same Greek word that Paul used early in the chapter for encouragement. Paul sent Timothy to encourage and he got it right back just when he needed it most. Observe the fact that the faith of the Thessalonian believers had significant personal impact on Paul. It helped lift him, that strengthening in action, above his distresses and afflictions. He says, we were comforted about you. That means we were relieved to some degree of our pain through your faith. When was the last time you and I looked at our own faith walk as being a good dose of Tylenol for other believers? That's true, isn't it? We must understand that when we sin, when we stray from true faith and lose our spiritual footing, when we become soft and moved or displaced, weakened, all those definitions and antonyms that we studied last week for the words strengthen and courage, when we fail to stand firm, it impacts others. It especially hurts those who are closest to us and care the most. And not only that, there is a collective impact. It zaps some of the life out of the whole church family. It breaks all of our hearts. But the converse is also true. When we remain faithful, when we choose what's right even though it's hard, even though we don't see the end, when we pursue love even though it hurts, even though it costs, even though it's not convenient, that good news is like medicine to others who may also be suffering. It literally, emotionally, physically, spiritually encourages and comforts them. Look at what Paul said in verse 8. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Those are pretty incredible words. We really live if you stand firm in the Lord. That's another echo from the verses we studied last week. Paul says, we really live. That's the being strengthened. It's like Paul is saying in a sense, we stand taller, we get back up, we come back to life. We thrive when you stand firm in the Lord. It's not only medicine, it's Red Bull, right? Right? This is in stark contrast to what we studied last week on being discouraged and weakened. Wanting to give up. Energy being drained out of oneself. Losing our way. Paul said, now we want to go on. It's like the life is coming right back into us even though we're being persecuted. That is true strength. Strength exemplified when the test is on. Paul says, this is Real living, point number three. This collective strengthening and encouraging one another and standing firm together defies the afflictions and the distresses that the world and life can throw our way. Christian friend, do not underestimate the impact that your standing firm in Christ has on others. Not only on you, but on the entire body of Christ, the rest of your church, family, etc. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one stands firm, it strengthens us all. It inspires us in the grand purpose of this book, to walk in a manner worthy of God. Our Savior, who is calling us into His own kingdom and glory. This whole topic relates back to verse 1 in this chapter, chapter 3, in the issue of truly caring about the spiritual well-being of those around us. How do we know we really care? Well, for one, looking at today's text, we know we care if we hear of others who are spiritually struggling and it deeply affects us. Their dismay, their hopelessness, their questioning of their faith, their hurting, grabs our attention and demands of us that we do something about it. We also know we care if we hear of them standing in the Lord and it rejoices us. It thrills us. We know we care if we value their deep friendship too much to just let it go. We know we care if we need to see them face-to-face, as Paul said, as they said. Isolation is one of the grave dangers of Christianity. These two chapters are shouting this truth from the rooftop. We are designed to need each other and to support each other, to contribute into each other's lives. And a big part of that happens simply by valuing each other's presence, being together just a half hour 45 minutes ago in the foyer I saw John I said hey we missed you at men's breakfast yesterday he wasn't able to be there he said I missed being there because I love the fellowship you have no idea how much it impacted me when last Thursday a week and a half ago at our salt group Dave Christensen said unless my mom passes away in the middle of the night or needs me Sunday morning, I am going to be in church because I need my church family. He said, I need their fellowship encouragement. That hit me right here. That is exactly what Paul has been pleading with these believers to understand and for the church to understand He said, we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. That that desire to simply be together is one of the beautiful facets of genuine Christianity. In a society that is so stuck on independence, because let's be honest, relationships are hard. They do cost but in a society that's so bent on independence the church is called to the high road of unity as 1 corinthians 12 teaches we are one body the body of christ we are in this together look at how paul continues the joy and celebration of this relationship with god's people verse 9 for what thanks can we render to god for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account. That's Paul saying, we can't thank God enough. Can somebody please tell me how else to say it because I can't find adequate enough words. Point number four, inexpressible thanksgiving. Does that describe you and me and our view of God's people, our view of one another? And notice, Paul's thanksgiving is what? appropriate. Significant and exemplary. We saw that back in chapter 2. In the midst of Paul's joy, he turns heavenward and thanks God for the believer's faithfulness. He knows where all good things come from. He knows well where the strength to do what is right comes from. And how significant, how big is his thanksgiving? I love this. He says, for all the joy with which we rejoice. There are two joys in that sentence. That's joy upon joy. Joy that is layer upon layer. It's a piling up kind of joy. Christian friend, we again must not underestimate the joy we bring to our church family and to those who love Christ when we stand firm in Christ. Verse 10, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. This is highly instructive. What is Paul praying most earnestly for all the time here? That he can simply see these believers face to face. And why does he want to see them face to face? So he can complete what is lacking in their faith. So he can keep building them up, strengthening them, exhorting, encouraging, imploring, serving, all the things we saw in chapter 2 to build up their faith. There's a very important application point here. The main reason you and I should desire friendship and fellowship with others in the church and beyond is to build up each other's faith. This is purposeful fellowship. Point number five. There are a lot of good things to get together over. A tasty meal. Half of us are already thinking about lunch, right? You can get together for a good ball game, some outdoor recreation, you name it. It's all good stuff. But what is the believer's ultimate purpose for friendship and fellowship? What is the bullseye? Faith. More faith. Increased faith. Mature faith. Paul said, I want to complete. That is, round out. I want to mature. I want to bring it to its full potential. Their faith. Life together for the grand purpose of faith of walking in a worthy a manner worthy of our Savior. I need those kinds of friends desperately. You need those kinds of friends desperately. That's why Paul gives this prayer in the next verse, verse 11 to the end. He says, Now may our God and Father Himself, there's the emphasis, and Jesus our Lord, since they work together, direct our way to You. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. There is so much truth packed in there. Forgive me for the, the analogy, especially at lunchtime, but I got to eat dinner at a Japanese restaurant this last week and, and ordered one of those bento boxes. It's a piece of art. All of the different foods so neatly, artistically, beautifully arranged around the plate. I mean, you can picture the sushi, the vegetable tempura, the chicken teriyaki. I honestly <laughs> stared at it and thought, which one do I go for first? When I read verses 11 to 13 again, I honestly thought of that bento box. There is a wealth of spiritual feast in these few verses again for us. It's like, where do we start? Well, first we see in verse 11, Paul's right and honorable attribution to God. Divine attribution. Point six. It is the Lord who directs our lives. It is not us. And it is the Lord who increases and abounds our love for others. Aren't you glad that as a Christian, your ability to love others isn't limited to your own gut level unction? Because there are people out there who are hard to love, and we are all some of them. This verse teaches us, point number seven, that love is a miracle. The Lord causes it. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the first fruit of the Spirit listed, matter of fact. And the Lord doesn't just want us to have some. He wants us to have a lot. The verse says, increase and abound. Not just increase, not just abound, but both of them. There's the picture here of not only filling up, but filling over, Overflowing, having more than is even needed. Can you imagine having more love for others than is even needed? Mark and Nancy have this plum tree in their yard. Again, sorry, I know it's lunchtime, but they've got this plum tree that gets so weighed down with fruit, you are sure the branches are just going to bust. That is what God wants to do in you and me with our love for our church family and other believers, not just for those in our church, not for just for those in our own home, not those who are easy to love, etc. The verse specifically says, "and for all people." We are looking at limitless love, point number 8. Friends, that should be the heart cry of every one of us. Lord, don't just give me a super love for those who are closest to me in my own church, my own home. Let it overflow. Let it know no limits. Let it be a river that has no end, a river that reaches other people groups, other nations, other personality types, etc., Coworkers, classmates, you name it. It takes a miracle to have that kind of and that much love. But that's Paul's prayer for the church. And it wasn't just wishful thinking. The verse says he had it. He had experienced it. He had demonstrated it. And he wanted them to have it too. The grace of God is capable of giving us this kind of love and this quantity of love. So much more could be said on exemplary living and our calling to be examples to one another and the impact that it has, but we must keep moving. Verse 13, our last verse, it starts with two incredibly meaningful words, so that. Does your Bible say so that? Okay, sorry, a little bit of an inside joke there. You have to have been here last week, right, for our our family discussion on Bible translations. I'm preaching from the New American Standard Bible. Somebody came up to me right after the service last week and tapped me on the shoulder and said, if the King James was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. And walked off. Ah, only Lord knows how much trouble I've caused in our church now. Back to verse 13. So why in verse 12 did Paul want so badly for believers to increase and abound in love for all people? There is a reason, a very specific reason. Verse 13, So that He, that is God, may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. We see near the start here the word establish. That is the exact same Greek word used early in the chapter for strengthen. Meaning to place firmly to turn resolutely in a certain direction, to set fast. This is powerful. Notice the order of what the verse is teaching. What happens when love abounds? Hearts, the very core of a person, are strengthened and encouraged. Blame is removed and holiness is instilled. That's what happens When love abounds in a person, their entire life is impacted, both on earth and in heaven to come. Point nine, holy lives are made. And it's all done when and where it counts most before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Don't forget, everybody's going to be watching at that moment. And they're going to see whether there is holiness or not. there is going to see whether there is blame or not. We don't want to be found lacking faith and innocence and holiness when Jesus shows up. We know well that there are countless people spiritually falling apart, suffering in their weakness, plagued with guilt. Oftentimes, you don't have to convince them they're sinners. They know it. And along with that guilt comes shame. It is a downward spiral of discouragement and depression. Just watch the daily news. Have you seen it in the last two days? Just watch the daily news. People are suffering spiritually in the inner man. There is evil out there. As Scripture teaches, there is a spiritual battle happening. People are suffering. What's the cure? Faith, love, relationship. Not first with the person sitting next to you, not first with your church family, but first with God Himself. There's a verse that we quote often, 1 John 4, 19. We love because He first loved us. That is why we celebrate the resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ brought down the love of God upon humanity like they had never experienced before. Or to put that properly, I should say, the love of God brought down the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our benefit. There is forgiveness to be found at the cross. And where there is forgiveness, there is no shame. There is power to be found in the cross and the resurrection. The cross defeated sin, and the resurrection defeated death. What more could a person ask for? The curse of sin is death. And the love of God crushed both through Jesus Christ. This is why we celebrate Easter. It's why we pray. It's why we study the Bible and put our faith in the Word of God. It's why we strive to live out and share the good news of faith and love with others. As we close, I want to draw your attention to one final word in this text. Back in our first verse for today, verse 6, Paul said, Timothy has brought us good news of your faith and love. Friend, the good news of the gospel is meant to be personally experienced. It's not just a faith in love. It's not just a belief in God. Paul said, I rejoice because it is your faith and love. This teaches us that faith and love are meant to be owned. We Christians celebrate Easter because we have experienced it. The cross and the resurrection power and joy are ours. The question is, is it yours? Will you be blameless and holy before God the Father when this life is over? That's a very serious question. The Bible teaches us that the answer to that question is the difference between heaven and hell for eternity. Many people think I'm not that bad. I'm sure I'll be good enough for God when the time comes. Those people have unfortunately not seen what Scripture says. You and I may very well be good people, but that is not the standard. The question posed by Scripture is, will we be blameless? That is, without sin. Will we be holy when we stand before God. And the verse here shows us that the test is even harder than that. We have to be blameless and holy at the heart level. We're talking about every one of our thoughts, our deepest desires and motivations. Are we holy and without sin to the core? I'll be the first to say I'm not. I'd be lying if I said I was. That's why I needed Jesus. You and I may very well be good people, but again, that is not the standard. Everyone has sinned and is guilty of wrongdoing. You know these verses well. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the serious reality of that. If God is a good and just God, and He is, he cannot just let sin go. He would be the ultimate unjust judge if He did. He would not be perfect and holy if He let sin go. That in itself would be a spiritual crime. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That is the penalty, the payment. The earnings of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is almost too good to be true. But God said it, so we know it's true. Eternal life is a gift. It's free. That means we can't earn it, we can't buy it. It's free because of what Jesus did for us. The truth is, He paid the price as a gift for you and me. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us so much, He sent His own blameless Son to take our place in death. That's why the verse says, He died for us. He took our place on the cross. That is why Christians gather together and worship on Good Friday. We reflect on the cross and the power of the cross. We reflect on the cost of the cross. We pause to let it sink in that Jesus willingly and lovingly took our place and paid our penalty for our sin. Romans 10.9 says, So what to do with all of this? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's why we celebrate Easter. Without the resurrection, there's no getting saved. Verse 10, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses. That is, he acknowledges. He admits. He confesses resulting in salvation that's talking about a person simply humbly choosing to be a follower of Christ a forgiven believer verse 11 for the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed that's as good as a, a guarantee as you can find God guarantees our forgiveness and our salvation. The promise of zero disappointment ever. Not now, not at the end of life, not in the next. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. He's abounding in the riches of forgiveness and love, of hope and eternal life, etc. That verse is one of the greatest reliefs. Reliefs in all of Scripture, that God extends His salvation to all. doesn't matter what race you are, how old you are, what you've done, what you haven't done. God abounds in the riches of love and forgiveness for everyone. No exceptions. Verse 13, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is, is the good news of the gospel right there. The good news of faith and love. The question is, is it yours? If not, won't you believe and follow Christ today and make the resurrection your celebration as well? Join the family of God. That's what we've spent most of this morning talking about. The blessings, the workings, the riches, of being a part of the family of God, being made one of His own adopted children. Let God do spiritually for you what you absolutely cannot do for yourself. Simply tell God you believe. You repent and you believe. Repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell Him that you choose to trust and follow Him in His Word. And the scripture says, you will be saved. That is, as simple as it seems, the miracle of forgiveness. The miracle of salvation. The miracle of hope that cannot be taken away. If you have any questions about this good news, please come to me after the service today. Come to someone else in the church here. Let us open the Word of God together with you and show you how you can have the promise and the assurance of forgiveness and eternal life. We care deeply about your spiritual well-being. We care because someone else cared about us. It's our privilege, it's our joy to share the good news of God's faith and love in us. For those here who do believe, Christian friend celebrate. Let our joy rejoice, as Paul said. Let us celebrate the faith and the love that is ours. And don't let the joy stop after today. Don't let the love for God and others plateau. Let it increase and abound all the more until Jesus comes. We have that hope because He is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the love that was demonstrated to us by You through the cross and the resurrection. Such love, such power that we cannot find anywhere else in the world. There is no one, no person, no thing who can offer us what You have offered. Forgiveness of sin, holiness, blamelessness when at the end of this life we stand before God and give account. Thank you that Jesus took our place on the cross. He paid our penalty for our sins. Lord, if there is even one here today who does not own the faith and the love the deep friendship that we have reflected on today, I pray that you, your Holy Spirit, would give them understanding, give them faith to believe, and may they experience the miracle of limitless love, the miracle of eternal hope and joy. For those of us who have it, Lord, may it increase and abound, and may we share it all the more, and all the while, May our hearts and the joy in them rejoice in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.